Ladies and gentlemen, the 1996 Tony Awards, celebrating its 50th anniversary. Presented by the League of American Theaters and Producers and the American Theater Wing. All right, welcome back to My Little Tonys. Hello, and this week we're back in the 90s. I know, you know, we were talking about maybe like, is this too close to 2001 to go right back to it? But, you know, we're doing it. We made our bed and now we're going to lie in it. Yeah, and I also think that this is sort of like an outlier year of the 90s. Like, I feel like this was like a year that for better or worse, might have given a false sense of like what was to come in the future. It's true, but it was a it was a good season, but it was a particularly bad Tony's, <laughs> which we'll get into. We've had some chaotic seasons before, but this one I think takes the cake out of chaos and confusion, drama. This season <laughs> has it all. People are getting sued, people are dying, people are declining nominations. And to borrow a term from another popular podcast, I would say that this was a very hooey ceremony (laughs) (laughs) yes despite the presence of one of the themiest shows of all time this is definitely a hooey ceremony um, which was reflected in the viewership so this was actually the 50th annual tony awards which in the ceremony every time they gave a tony they were like and the 50th annual tony award goes to it's like all right give it a rest it was broadcast by CBS um, from the Majestic Theater on June 2nd, 1996. And here we got Nathan Lane again. You know, we didn't do this on purpose, but this is a very, like, this season that we've been doing so far has been very, like, Nathan Lane, Zero Mostel, Nathan Lane playing a Zero Mostel role. Yeah. (laughs) It only had about 8.7 million viewers the year before, it had it had 10 million, and the next year, it had 13 million. And it's also just insane because the year before this, there was nothing happening. Yeah, like Sunset Boulevard pretty much won by default. So to have such a strong slate of musicals, and this actually, this best musical season kind of mirrors 2008, which I didn't really realize until we dug into it, where it had these sort of big money commercial shows come in and get totally ignored by the Tonys in favor of these sort of more experimental, like off-Broadway, nonprofit origin shows. Mm -hmm. Like in 2008, you know, Young Frankenstein and The Little Mermaid got snubbed for Passing Strange in in the Heights. And then so this year, the best musical nominees were Rent, which had 10 nominations and four wins. Bring in Denoise, Bring in Defunk, which had nine nominations and four wins. Chronicle of a Death Foretold, which had three nominations and zero wins. And Swinging on a Star, which had one nomination and zero wins. And the other big shows that year were Victor Victoria, Big, and State Fair. And I think it's worth noting that Chronicle of a Death Foretold and Swinging on a Star were both closed by the time of the Tonys. Yeah, and so these nominations caused so much drama. So this is from the day after the nominations. James Friedberg, one of the producers of Big, which earned five nominations for score, book, lead actress, choreography, and featured actor, said he believed the committee had favored shows from nonprofit institutions and looked down their noses at musicals created by commercial producers. All I know, he said, is that this year's nominations were a statement by a bunch of academics and a young playwright, and their statement was that commercial producing is similar to being a politician. A member of the committee who insisted on anonymity said the intensity of the reaction to the best musical decision came as a shock. The panelists added that shows were judged on their merits and that if the panel had simply nominated the most obvious choices it would have been accused of being coached the tony does not stand for rubber stamping commercial shows just because they're commercial the panelists said i didn't vote because i'm looking at what the tony awards show is going to look like if they don't have two numbers from the big hits so 
that you know them snubbing those shows led to being like oh but like are people gonna watch it if we don't have all these shows performing like all that jazz Mm -hmm. and i think that like this sort of mentality that the nominators are like out to get us like looking at the list of nominators it's kind of who you expect it would be like it doesn't feel like some kind of radical group of people (laughs) like trying to like shake things up right Well, everyone was like, after this, they're probably going to shake things up, um, which they did. So they decided that 28 people instead of 14 would pick the nominees. And they also um, imposed a three-year term limit on the nominators and a two-hour limit on discussion and to eliminate weighted voting. So this year did end up changing the way that the Tony nominations ended up working. The exclusion of the two shows perceived to have the widest attraction for a national television audience is not a plus as far as some of the people who put the show together are concerned. It's a big problem, said one who refused to be named. When you have a lot this many people speaking off the record, you know that everyone is freaking out. Yesterday, those involved in planning the Tony telecast produced by the American Theatre Wing and the League of American Theatres and Producers began talks on whether musicals not nominated might still be included. So the nominations reflected the strength of the nonprofit institutional theatre. Not only did all four best musical candidates begin at not-for-profit theatres, but three of the four best play nominees started at nonprofit theatres outside New York. So Julie Andrews was appearing on Broadway, reprising her role in Victor Victoria from the movie in a production that was directed by her husband, Blake Edwards, and she ended up being the only nomination from that show, and she she declined it. So she said, I will stand instead with the egregiously overlooked cast and creative team for the $8.5 million musical. And the Tony people were like, well, she's still going to be on the ballot. <laughs> Ms. Andrews's decision to snub the snubbers enveloped the Tony Awards in one of the most perplexing crises in its 50-year history. What was the theater establishment to do when the biggest star on Broadway, playing in one of its biggest grossing hits, refused to participate in its most important ceremony? And what happens now to the Tony Awards television show on which Ms. Andrews was expected to be one of the chief attractions? Yikes. And I liked that uh, in like the pre- Tony article, it seemed like people still expected her to win. So they give these reasons. A, she carries Victor Victoria, the highest grossing new Broadway show on her shoulders. B, the show needs a Tony to help with business when it goes on the road. C, she deserves it. D, theater people are perverse. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> I did it to be evil, admitted a snickering Tony voter who cast a ballot for Ms. Andrews, <laughs> which like, that's my excuse when my boyfriend is like, why did you just take a clean fork out of the dishwasher and not just empty the whole thing? <laughs> I did it to be evil. I like don't get her reasoning behind all of this. It makes me think differently of her. I feel really? like, yeah, I think that it being like sort of like a selfless move, I think it kind of like goes back around to like her being like self-absorbed. <laughs> I mean, I think if she hadn't made such a fuss, it would have been a gimme for her like and she has never won a tony yeah despite what what people seem to think yeah exactly has she won an honorary i don't think so no so she doesn't she's only had the three nominations so she's an ego an ego she she is a very appropriate term (laughs) (laughs) well it's also just like i think that victor victoria is like strange too for like a lot of reasons that we'll get into in the next episode but she and her husband teamed up for the movie i guess like 
Was it, it was in the 80s? 82. He also, you know, he directed that. She's doing this like rare thing of bringing a screen role onto the stage. It seems like a weird thing a weird move i think if she's like kind of like thinking of this as like integrity of as like being an artist i think that like reprising like a weird stage ice cream <laughs> roll on the stage really is already challenging that point i don't know i wonder if she would have done it if her husband hadn't directed it i feel like that must have played mm-hmm. a big role is sort of you know standing by her man so frank rich had a little editorial where he kind of talked about the whole ordeal and apparently victor victoria the box office jumped 50 percent after she declined the nomination the highly acclaimed shows that received all the tony accolades that victor victoria did not bring into noise Masterclass, seven guitars a delicate balance among many others we're all dumping seats for that night with steep discounts what's the problem in what is widely regarded as broadway's best season in years it's surely not that victor victoria a lackluster star vehicle at best was a victim of rank injustice especially given the real tony competition this year even so the awards have long been a joke only last season, Broadway's most acclaimed performance, Nathan Lane's In Love, Valor, Compassion, failed to be nominated. Three years earlier, a Tony nominating committee was purged, as this year's no doubt soon will be, after it ignored plays that were running to nominate those that had closed. Variety long ago exposed still rampant fraud in the voting process, and the hapless Tony show itself, Network TV's sole celebration of live theater, will this year have more pre-recorded segments than ever before. But the mere fact that such unprofessional nonsense has gone on so long without reform, devaluing the Tonys to the point where even a big winner like 1994's Passion still flops is, as the prominent theatrical lawyer John Braglio put it, symptomatic of the underlying chaos in this business. The Tonys are the least of the crises in a leaderless industry that can't slow the rising production costs and ticket prices that, rent notwithstanding, deter audiences younger than Miss Andrews's and are likely to leave most of this season's hits drowned in red ink. You know, even though artistically this was seen as like such a good season, Mm -hmm. we're seeing this like tipping point in terms of you know young audiences being priced out of going to the theater and actually they talk about this in the critics round table also margo jefferson says maybe we're at that point in the way cultures and art forms move it just can't carry it what i've been shocked by though is the range of lively intelligent not even academic people who will say to me gee i don't go to the theater why should i it's dead they're not ashamed they're not uncomfortable And then Vincent Canby said, theater has gotten itself into a very peculiar corner. It's for the economically elite. It costs a lot of money, but the people who might enjoy real theater don't go. Those who can afford it see the Phantom of the Opera or Les Mis. And Margot said, or can't, like young audiences. I have all these students, graduate students, people in their teens and 20s at Columbia. They can't go. Three of my students paid more than they could to sit in the back row of Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk, which they were dying to see. They're the audience. So, you know, same old, same old story. Yeah, I think that people are really coming to the terms with the chaos. I think everything that you just quoted like really speaks to this idea of everyone's trying to like point fingers at like why their show's not working or like why they can't get a young audience and like I just think that all of the information it like contradicts itself at some point. And I also thought in that same article they had a little interesting back and forth about the role of the critic where like people only want to see shows that get raves even though like a show that gets mixed reviews can still be really worthwhile. So Vincent Canby said, I often feel a little bit inhibited getting into that sort of thing. Seven Guitars is something I'd love everybody to see and I'm sure they would love it. They would get into it. Should we point out the problems in the second act in detail or brush over it? I don't think it's worth it to criticize too much if we're going to keep people away. And Peter Mark says, because a play is so fragile from an audience point of view, they'll turn off if you point out too many flaws. And Vincent Canby said, they have no time for the show that receives a mixed review. People want to see the hit and stay away from the flop. 
They don't respond to mixed reviews. The fact is that the reader is now just interested in a thumb up or thumb down from the critic. And that's no way to criticize theater. And Ben Brantley said, The problem is that to get people into the theater, you do have to cheerlead. It's a shame we can't all read a little more temperately, but we're in such a hard sell universe. Like, I feel like there's a lot of tension more so than in other art forms between like the critics and then and theater makers because it is such like a small community it's so expensive it's like hard to get people in the door to see like something that doesn't have a huge publicity machine behind it and like a critic can really make or break a show but it's like what responsibility does the critic have to be true to you know how they feel about it it is interesting because i think that in sort of what we end up doing where we're jumping through you know different decades of theater i think that like comparing a show from the fi- the criticism of a show from the 50s or 60s it's a little easier for me to see if there's a thumbs up or a thumbs down in it whereas like i think that even some of brantley's reviews it takes me two readings <laughs> to like understand or like sometimes i'll be like oh yeah i got a good review in the times but then it's like actually rereading it and i'm like well is that a good review <laughs> you know yeah and i mean i think i I generally will use like I really won't read a review until unless it's something I'm really on the fence about but if I like know I do want to see something I won't read the review until after because like I'm interested in reviews as someone really smart analyzing and giving their take on a piece of art just like as a piece of writing you know like I think the role of the critic as like you should see this and you shouldn't see this I think people maybe place too much um, emphasis on them in that form. Yeah. Well, it is kind of interesting because in one of the articles that kind of rounds up the season that was centered around big, they kind Mm -hmm. of point out different things that like make a show. And it's like, is it Tony nominations? Is it criticism? But like this little passage, I think kind of brings up another aspect. Other Broadway veterans, however, said that the lack of a nomination for big did not fully explain its death. Killed it? No, heard it, said one who demanded anonymity. Another anonymous <laughs> Yeah, I know. Another anonymous source. <laughs> what killed it was word of mouth. The word of mouth was not there. If it was good, it would have been doing better business. So the other big scandals that we don't have to get too deep into. So David Merrick, who at this point is very old. <laughs> so he was producing State Fair, which was a Rogers and Hammerstein movie that they made into a stage show. Or it was two movies. It was two movies. Yeah, that's something I didn't actually know. (laughs) And we'll get into more of it next time. But basically, he was really fighting to get it into the best score category because the committee ruled that only four of the songs from the score were eligible. And he was like, well, why didn't Beauty... Like, why was Beauty and the Beast eligible for best score? So there was that whole drama. It did end up getting a best score nomination, but I think it was only partial yeah i think only those four songs <laughs> yeah so it is funny to see rogers and hammerstein up there next to uh to jonathan larson yeah <laughs> they had a kind of a funny little um piece that sort of was like reflecting on all this drama called tony's in turmoil do they have a role and they um interviewed like a bunch of random theater people what they think of the tonys and some of the responses were very funny arthur lawrence said I don't have much respect for prizes like the Tonys. The first musical I wrote was West Side Story. It didn't win the Tony. The second was Gypsy. It didn't win the Tony. Later, I wrote Hallelujah Baby, which did win the Tony, really because there was almost no competition within that category. 
The Tony is not a recognition of excellence. It is a device whereby nominations are made and categories must be filled, primarily to satisfy the demands of a television show. Its sole value is publicity, and even that is rapidly diminishing. Besides, nobody knows who's in charge. Nobody knows whom to complain to. So Cameron McIntosh said, The nomination systems on both sides of the Atlantic are extremely flawed, resulting in most awards only representing what a very narrow, often agenda-ridden group of people want to happen. And Celeste Holm, who was in the original cast of Oklahoma, had a very sweet answer. Every successful show has been a collaboration. It's silly to single people out. Oscar Hammerstein said, The most important word in theater is collaboration. When you're over 10 years old, why do you need stars on your report card? I don't think we should have awards. Anything that makes artists competitive is destructive. We're all so interdependent that it is astonishing that people don't think about that. Wow. <laughs> I know. So I just have one more. So uh, Paul Rudnick, the playwright, had a very funny answer. The Tony categories are far too vague. I propose the following additions. Best actress without a film career. Most visible microphone in someone's wig. <laughs> most bitter producer of a musical and most desperately uncalled for revival. Additional nods might go to the most creative advertising using rave reviews from New Jersey radio shows, most expensive musical about poor people, and the best play that you know you should go see, but you went to Twister instead. Oh, my God. (laughs) Shots fired from Paul Rudnick. That's very funny. Well, also, fun fact is Anthony Rapp was in Twister. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, and I think that seeing what Obie Award categories Rent won for, or like the categories that the Obies essentially made up to honor Rent, there was like a best ensemble um, award that it was given. And it's like, yeah, Rent should win a best ensemble award. It's cool to like think of a way that you could honor and lift things up when they're actually do achieve something that is extraordinary. I mean, I think people have also, uh, said that there should be a best ensemble Tony, which, you know, there should be. Oh, and one other snub that I thought was very mean was that in this, the year of the snub comes word of another. Betty Comden and Adolph Green, the veteran musical writers, were invited to present the best musical Tony. Then the Tony people called back. Andrew Lloyd Webber, they were told, would be handing it out instead. Although Tony officials offered them a lesser award as a consolation prize, the hurt and disappointed team, who have won six Tonys of their own, said no. It's their loss, Ms. Comden said. I even had my dress picked out. And knowing that, watching the ceremony, Andrew Lloyd Webber really fucks up delivering that award. So yeah, it's like he's so bad. <laughs> he has like no charisma at all. <laughs> it also just like feels like there's so much like disdain towards him at certain points. And like if you, it's a 50th anniversary celebrating the Tony Awards, you need Covenant and Green up there. I'm sorry. I know. Yes. Bad move, Tony's. Um, I guess one last thing. There was an article after the Tony, sort of the post-Tony roundup, called The Tony's in a Slump. What kills a show on Broadway? Poor box office and harsh reviews. But the Tony Awards broadcast continues to run on CBS. The reviews for Sunday night's show were scathing, and the ratings were the lowest in history. But CBS executives yesterday still did not post a closing notice. Instead, the network stood by its commitment to carry the show again next year. Several CBS executives said yesterday they would have liked the show to be produced with more appeal to a wider television audience, pointing out that the mix of styles from State Fair to Bring in Noise, Bring in Funk was at times jarring, especially to the mainstream audience, both for television and Broadway. I guess by trying to please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody. Gary Smith, the executive producer of the Tony Awards broadcast, was on the phone from Los Angeles trying to make sense of the torrent of criticism that followed the 50th annual Tonys. It's just so difficult trying to appeal to everyone, he said. I'm not sure I'm able to do it. Maybe it just can't be done. 
Things got so testy that the audience of the Majestic Theater actually hissed when a speech by Peggy Eisenhower, who won Best Lighting with Jules Fisher for Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk, was edited out. Theater people are hilarious and touching and sentimental, said Andre Bishop, artistic director of Lincoln Center Theater, who felt the show was not. As events of cultural significance go, award shows are not exactly up there with the Orestia. Still, shoehorning the drive-by Tonys into two frantic hours left many theater people feeling sullen and underappreciated. In other words, the way they feel most of the year. <laughs> So the, in the ratings, it came in third after an NBA playoff game and a rerun of Matlock. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> That's bleak. 13 out of the 21 awards were pre-taped in the hour before the broadcast and shown in an edited version. So, like, there are some people's speeches who are clearly just cut off right in the middle. Like, Audra's speech, like, people were not happy. It was nice that it was so short. I will yeah. say that. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, it was nice for us. I think for the concept behind the award of, like, inviting all of these people who have at one point one, it was a very kind of Follies-esque concept (laughs) yeah and they're they definitely like threw a little shade at julie when it started with her and richard burton and camelot arise my love arise my love apollo's lighting the skies my love the meadows shine with columbine and daffodils blossom away and then it had nathan lane with his back turned wearing like one of her julie and julia julie and julia victor victoria that would be a good double feature victor victoria costumes with his back turned and he like turns around and he's like oh come on you really thought she was gonna show up no no that's about as likely as the pope showing up at madonna's baby shower And I think it's worth noting that the year after this ceremony is when they started doing the PBS splitting up of the awards. Well, that's the smartest thing they've ever done. Until they stopped doing it. (laughs) (laughs) So... The intro, so this was in the Majestic Theater, which was the home of the Phantom of the Opera, and it opened with this intro from the Phantom of the Opera that was very like, you know, have you ever been to the Haunted Mansion in Disney World? You know, you're in the car and you have like this spooky ghost like narrating you going through the mansion. Do not pull down on the safety bar, please. I will lower it for you. And heed this warning. The spirits will materialize only if you remain quietly seated at all times. Good evening, and welcome to my humble home, the Majestic Theatre, which has been my pleasure to haunt for the past eight and a half years. God knows I've done everything in my power to ready it for this evening's Tony Awards. Up all last night, polishing my chandelier. So behave yourselves. I wouldn't want to have to drop it on anybody. Nathan Lane. So then, you know, we get Bernadette and Liza. Singing a knockoff song. It sounds like a knockoff gypsy song. Some folks like to stay at home. Some folks like to live alone. So when they finally come out of their nest, they got to turn it off. We've got to be is that a real song or did they just make that up? I think it might have. I typed in the show must go on Bernadette Peters and I didn't get anything back the other night. Is someone going to roast us for not knowing? It just sounded like a fake song. There's a Queen song, a Pink Floyd song. None of these seem like they are this song. Let us know. Yeah, if anyone knows, tell us nicely. The show must go on. The show. 
should we just should we do rent? Yeah, let's do it. I will say though that Nathan Lane was edging on being a little too mean. You know, he was. I bet he was bitter that about the love, valor, compassion incident. Oh, and he does make reference to that. He does, and he wins tonight. It's interesting that two of his wins were during ceremonies that he hosted. Yeah, seems, I know. Seems I was a little fishy. Okay, so I think it's important to remember going into this that I think Rent is what we remember most from this season, but it didn't dominate the way that the producers did. Like, it won the same amount of Tonys as Bring in Noise and The King and I. It just won the big ones. So... Rent opened April 29th, 1996, closed September 7th, 2008 after 5,123 performances. Not quite 525,600. <laughs> Music, lyrics, and book by Jonathan Larson. Original concept and additional lyrics, Billy Aronson. Directed by Michael Greif. Choreographed by Marley Zierby. And the synopsis is, based on Puccini's beloved opera La Boheme, Rent follows the ups and downs of a year in the life of a group of impoverished artistic friends living in Manhattan's East Village. Mark, an aspiring filmmaker, struggles to find his place in the world. His roommate Roger, an HIV-positive musician, wonders how he will leave his mark before he dies. Mimi and Angel look for true love as they face the harsh reality of life as HIV-positive young people, while the business-like Joanne seeks fidelity from her wild child performance artist's girlfriend Maureen. The group's dreams, losses, and love stories weave through the musical's narration to paint a stunningly raw and emotional portrait of the gritty bohemian world of New York City in the late 1980s under the shadow of HIV AIDS. And I realized one thing we have not been good at despite this being a Tony's centered podcast is we're not consistent with naming the awards, Mm -hmm. uh, naming the Tony's (laughs) that the shows are nominated for and win. So that changes today. That changes... (laughs) For at least for this episode, <laughs> no promises going forward. He was nominated for Best Musical, Best Book, Best Score, Best Actor for Adam Pascal, Best Actress for Daphne Urban Vega, Best Featured Actor for Wilson Germain Heredia, Best Featured Actress Adina Menzel, Best Lighting Design, Best Choreography, and Best Direction. And it won Musical, Book, Score, and Featured Actor. And it also won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Anthony Rapp was snubbed. Does he talk? He doesn't make that big of a to-do about it in his book, but he does mention that he was upset that he was not nominated. Yeah, I mean, I think the annoyingness of Mark maybe was working against him. Also, you know, Adam Pascal wasn't really an actor and just kind of came in off the street and had an amazing voice. And Well, neither neither did Adina Menzel. She had never acted before, and she was, like, singing in, like, a wedding band and, like, (laughs) weddings and bar mitzvahs. So... I don't even know where to start. Should we start at the beginning? Yeah, I think that like Jonathan Larson, have we mentioned that, you know, he died right before (laughs) the show kind of. Because we will. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to talk a lot about it. I think going into this, the two questions that I've sort of always had that I had my theories on but never really investigated were one, was there initially backlash and criticism of Rent? Or was it nonstop raves? And two, did his death lead to all of the the praise and, and publicity and, you know, adulation? And I think the answer is yes, people were criticizing it. And yes, it was because of his death that it became such a phenomenon. It's interesting because I think that his death did this weird thing where like the 15 years that he was writing Rent and living in New York, living in this like bohemian 
existence himself. He would like introduce himself and be like, I'm Jonathan Larson and I'm the future of the musical theater in America. Everyone would be like, did he really just say that? I think it kind of like propels this like Jesus-like image of him as someone who dies before he could really like make his mark. I think that there's just this like whole shaping of this narrative of him that feels like it has some sort of like aura around it. No, totally. And I think we can get into that. But speaking of like him introducing himself that way, I did see someone, one of his friends tell a story that was like we would be at these cool like East Village art parties and he would be like yeah I'm like writing a musical and people would just like walk away from him so eventually he would just be like yeah I'm a songwriter. I think part of the mythology around Rent is that it is this like one man magnum opus but I think the research around it is really there were so many other people that were essential in making it what it was and so he didn't even have the original idea for it. It was Billy Aronson. So he went to see he was also living in New York at the time and he went to see La Boheme and he was like walking home and sort of thinking about let me see if I can find a good quote I actually have you got a quote so this is from this book that I have that is just called Rent and it has like the published libretto and also it is like 40 oral history interviews that are kind of like weaved together as like a narrative it's actually very cool Billy Aronson writes I was living in Hell's Kitchen in a tiny apartment with no place to think So I would go to the Met a lot and get standing room in solitude. I really fell in love with La Boheme. The similarity between these artists and their poverty in New York in the late 80s struck me. The number of homeless people were shooting up and people were dying all around us. There was AIDS and lack of government support for the arts. And then Playwrights Horizons introduced him to two songwriters and he met um, Jonathan Larson. And together they wrote Santa Fe. I should tell you and the Rent opening song, which had very bad lyrics in the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love how he he keeps telling the story where he's like, you know, Jonathan invited me over to like hear these songs and he like had this little Casio keyboard and he like played Rent for him and he was like, oh my God, how am I going to tell him that I think this sucks? And he was (laughs) like, but I liked the other two songs a lot more. So apparently, you know, they had like a really tough time collaborating. It was a little bit of a he said, he said. The response to the concept of an East Village La Boheme was great, Mr. Larson said. Also to my music, the response to Billy's lyrics was not so hot. This is not the way Mr. Aronson remembers it. We just weren't sure how to go further together, Mr. Aronson said. We had different styles. Mine was more of an ironic comic approach. His was direct and gutsy. So Jonathan asked if he could take the show over himself. And there is a letter that Jonathan wrote to Bill saying, as per our phone conversation, I'm planning with your permission to go ahead and continue working on Rent. If any such miracle as a production happens, I'll give you credit for original concept and any lyrics of yours that I use. So as you can, as you heard when we were reading all the credits, he is credited. That's something I didn't know. Yeah, I feel like it kind of gets erased in the in the man, the myth, the legend about Jonathan Larson. I'm not sure who wrote these lyrics, but these are horrible lyrics <laughs> that Anthony Rapp talked talks about hearing the opening Rent song for the first time. I press play and a fake sounding electric guitar solo wailed out a melody I recognized but couldn't place. Then abruptly it was cut off and fake sounding drums and more fake sounding guitars kicked in, chugging along in a mid-tempo rock song. It all sounded sampled and computerized and very 80s. I hoped the rock and roll vibe would get a little more authentic, but I reminded myself that the tape was probably a demo.
out the window, brain all splattered, guts all steaming in the snow. I wouldn't have to finish shooting video no one wants to show. Rent. <laughs> I feel like... I remember someone saying that that's like more of a literal translation of something that uh, Marcello says yeah. <laughs> in, in uh, La Boheme. Oh, that's actually kind of interesting. Don't quote me on that. I didn't find that in this round of research, but I feel like I remember hearing it at some point. I mean, I think that English translation of opera lyrics don't always make a lot of narrative sense or, you know, mm -hmm. I think that a lot of what we read as subtitles in opera are too literal of translations that you sometimes lose the poetry and right. i also think that with rock music itself a lot of times it's not about the actual lyrics so i think that like him combining rock and opera and then you know adding not saying that i think the lyrics of rent are like the best lyrics ever but he bridges a gap in a successful way yeah and i also think maybe jumping ahead a little bit but um so musetta's waltz which is referenced a lot musically and lyrically the lyrics to that actually are kind of reappropriated for take me or leave me when i walk all alone in the street people stop and stare at me and look for my whole beauty from head to feet and then i taste the slight yearning which transpires from their eyes which is able to perceive for manifest charms to most hidden beauties so the scent of desire is all around me it makes me happy <laughs> <laughs> oh my god every single day i walk down the street i hear people say baby so sweet ever since puberty everybody stares at me boys girls i can't help it baby so he's split with billy aronson so he's biking around one day trying to figure out what to do with rent. He sees the New York Theater Workshop theater being under construction. He's like, hey, this is the perfect place for rent. So he goes in and he's like, I have this show, you know, get, leaves them a demo tape. And that's when he gets connected with Jim Nicola, who is one of the other most important people. I think the most important people in shaping the show are Jim Nicola, Michael Greif, the director, Lynn Thompson, the dramaturg, which we'll get into. Mm -hmm. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's it. So the three of them, I think, really were almost like in some ways co-authors of the show. So when it was at New York Theatre Workshop, they cast a lot of the people who ended up being in the Broadway version. And I think one of the things that really made it successful is how well they cast it and how they really like went outside the box of musical theater actors. Mm -hmm. um, just because like also the style of music and what was required of them was so different from what had been on Broadway up until that point, like the style of singing. A lot of them didn't have acting experience. And Bernie Telsey talking about casting Roger. He said, 50 guys showed up, 49 of them looked like Alice Cooper, and there's this one good-looking guy. It was like, please, God, can a guy this handsome sing? <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> um, and his big problem was that, Adam Pascal's problem was that since he was you know, used to singing in a band, he didn't know how to sing with his eyes open. So they were like, you come back for the callback, but you have to sing it with your eyes open. <laughs> and he got it. This is another little um, fun passage about the casting. Casting Rent was an incredible challenge. 
the roles are really tricky. On the singing level, they're demanding because they all have to sing five songs or more, and they have to have incredible voices. Most agents and their musical theater clientele will not do a not-for-profit short run. They're going to hold out because if they really can really sing, they'll get cast, even if it's in the chorus of Victor Victoria. Well, Tay Diggs was like, I blew off the audition twice, and then I finally just went to like get my agent off my back. And actually, something, a little tidbit I thought was weird was that like, they kind of had to talk Jonathan Larson into casting Daphne Rubin Vega because he had envisioned more of like an operetta style voice. And it's so hard to imagine those songs with that. Like, it seems like they were written for her. I've had also says I knew I was going to get it or die trying I just love her so much I love her too (laughs) and like I also feel like in we that we've touched on a little bit is a recurring theme is people being like I listened to the demos and I was like this sucks (laughs) like once they sort of you know were performing it like bringing their own flavor to it then that's really what brought it to life I think this show it's sort of similar to how I feel about hair where it's like so much of it hinges on having a cast that really does have that authenticity like so many of the people in this cast were like living the life of these characters and it's like I think that's part of why it hasn't aged so well as like now you know you cast it with like a bunch of 22 year olds like fresh out of their BFA program and it's like it's just too cute and like I think that's also a problem when you are doing hair and it's like part of what was I think exciting about it was that it like was all of these young people whose lives were like really affected by all of these things that were happening and now it's kind of like it's just not there anymore I mean I know you know actors are supposed to be able to act (laughs) like actors should be able to do anything but I think like it just ends up being a little too clean and cute and it's funny I I thought a little funny like tidbit from that workshop was so Jeffrey Seller and Kevin McCollum shepherded it to its eventual home on Broadway and they like brought their checkbooks to Jonathan Larson at the end of act one we're like we want to do this show and it's like maybe you want to wait till you see act two (laughs) act two is a little bit of a a mess I think that another connection between In the Heights and Rent is that they both have similar second act problems, I think, a little bit. Interesting. Jim Nicola, who was the, as we said, was the artistic director of New York Theatre Workshop, had a funny thing, which also goes back to my question of whether the criticisms that people have now, people had then. There's a good chunk of time when Jonathan and I were at odds. I had said Jonathan should think about bringing someone in to work on the book. He didn't want to hear that. At every performance, people could fill out response forms. There were some people who had a negative response, which was pretty consistent. Why should I care about these kids? Why don't they get a job? (laughs) (laughs) And I think, you know, one other thing about the cast is I think everyone was absolutely doing it behind the scenes. (laughs) Obviously, uh, you know, Tay and Adina got together. But Daphne Rubin-Vega finally confirmed that she and Adam Pascal were hooking up during it. In the Vulture oral history, he's like, Daphne was this little firecracker (laughs) of sexiness. I couldn't wait to come to work to be around her. 
It's funny because in Anthony Rapp, it does not. He actually at the time was dating a very closeted actor who said that he would never come out and he didn't want to be even be his date. Oh, to the... man. Yeah. So just a side note, I guess this is, might be the right place to talk about this since we're talking about the cast. Without You, a memoir of love, loss, and the musical Rent by Anthony Rapp. Yeah, doesn't have that much juicy Rent information, but it's a p- very pleasant read. You know, I think he's a real sweetie. He is a sweetie. A little off topic. No, we're not getting off topic, but we're getting <laughs> we're getting to his death. So I want to make sure it, there isn't anything else we want to talk about from when he was still alive. And I mean, I think also going off of the importance of the actors, like I think some of the characters are not written with a lot of depth. So like, I think this is a show where like the actor really does bring a lot of themselves into it. And also like he was rewriting it a lot during the the workshop and and off-Broadway rehearsal process. Like Take Me or Leave Me was maybe like the fourth or fifth song that he wrote for that spot in the show. And like he kept bringing in songs where they were like, this sucks, you have to write something else. And (laughs) he finally was like, I just need to get to know um, Adina and Freddie Walker um, a little bit better. So he was like hanging out with them and he was like, I got it. And then he came in with Take Me or Leave Me and they were like, it's perfect. was saying take me or leave me totally came out of adina and freddie they didn't create the song but they created an improvisational situation which fed him and then lisa hubbard goes on to say it shows that he really got it because it stops being a song just about lesbians and becomes a song about a relationship that happens to be lesbian (laughs) and also supposedly he and adina like collaboratively created over the moon together like with her improvising so you can blame it, that's, her. That's, for yeah. that. <laughs> I gotta get out of here. It's like I'm being tied to the hood of a yellow rental truck, being packed in with fertilizer and fuel oil, pushed over a cliff by a suicidal Mickey Mouse. I've got to, 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 got to find a way to jump over the moon. Only thing to do is jump over the moon. Well, I think that that's actually what you were saying is a really good point. And I felt last year watching Rent live that, you know, it kind of at times felt like kids playing dress up right more i think that like oddly like vanessa hudgens as maureen she was one of the only people who i was like okay yeah i get this i mean i think that's also because ultimately like maureen is just like a theater kid (laughs) like (laughs) i think she's maybe the easiest character for people to um play authentically like for that reason especially because like i think that mark and roger are so hard to play because they're like this very specific brand of sensitive Gen X man who's not gay. 
but right. he's kind of gay. I thought, speaking of Rent Live, like, I thought it was really... I think a lot of people were mad about Jordan Fisher playing Mark because they were like, he's not, you know, an awkward nerd. But, like, that was the first time where I was really like, oh, okay, I understand, first of all, like, why these people like him. <laughs> and, like, mm-hmm. you know, I think playing him is cooler and, like, you can believe that, like, Maureen would have dated him. You know, no offense to Anthony Rapp at all. Like, I think he, as I said, I think he's adorable. I think he's, like, got this sort of, like, sweet kind of guileless like Muppet energy but um, I think over <laughs> over time like Rent not Rent like Mark has come to symbolize like some of the worst things about Rent and like so I think that was a character where I was like oh sort of this fresh take on him I thought was a good thing I think that like a funny thing about Rent is that I had all these like preconceptions about it where I'm like oh yeah it's about these two gay guys who are friends who and I feel like it's the type of thing that has has such a big cultural impact that like people who don't know about it are talking about it and have opinions about it yet I think that like what you assume about it is not what it is right i mean i think i think it uh, it's sort of embodied by the fact that like a lot of people think that jonathan larson was a gay man who died of aids mm-hmm. like i would be so curious to sort of take an informal poll of people who are not really like clued into the the scene and see what they have absorbed just like culturally about the backstory of rent and also sort of adding to the confusion i think around his death is that he died of an aortic aneurysm which like i saw a couple of articles that refer to it as a brain aneurysm because I think aneurysm is not a term that we connect with a heart issue frequently so I think that adds to kind of the you know how did he die like what actually did happen Mm -hmm. but it was it was a heart problem and he had been feeling sick for a couple of days he went to two different emergency rooms and they misdiagnosed him and sent him home his roommate came home at 3 a.m. that night and found him on the floor of their apartment his family ended up pursuing a 250 million dollar malpractice suit against the hospitals that sent him home it ended up being dismissed but the hospitals actually did get fined they just like didn't follow up the right way they like didn't read his tests in a way like they were just like gotta get him out gotta send him home and like if they had been a little bit more on top of it he probably would have lived So he had been like feeling weird. The whole cast went out to dinner and he like decided to go someplace else without them. Um, And he got like a turkey burger. And like, I guess he was like feeling weird after that. And Daphne's like, it's because you went and ate that turkey burger without (laughs) us. Well, they did one. The first diagnosis was food poisoning. And I think they pumped his stomach, which apparently probably aggravated his condition. So then, you know, the rest is kind of history like they were like should we cancel the first preview and then they were like no it's what Jonathan would have wanted so they did it sort of concert style sitting around but then when they got to Love Bohem, like Anthony Rapp just stood up and did it and then they did the rest of the show as staged and then of course it became like the amount of press it got and I also want to shout out you know when we are like searching for archival articles and interviews like a lot of stuff sort of slips through the cracks because of you know websites and publications not like making their archives really available which is why a lot of times we lean on the New York Times because that those archives are easy to search but 
God bless the fan site, the Angel Fire fan site, Everything is Rent, <laughs> which preserved <laughs> dozens of articles about the show from the 90s. And it's like, after they are long gone from like whatever publication, especially the Village Voice. Yeah, like, you know, which, exactly. It's like so many of these, like Village Voice and American Theater. Well, one, American Theater is really hard to search for online. And two, the Village Voice no longer exists. And what's going to happen? Exactly. So like the fans, in you know, talking about like digital archiving, the fans are really, uh, keeping the flag flying and so you know we salute you and even like when we are pulling pictures from shows like for our Instagram a lot of times we'll have to get them from like fan sites or people's personal websites because uh, all the other links are broken so Jesse L. Martin was having a really hard time in rehearsal kind of like digging deep enough for the reprise of I'll Cover You he says that doing it in that performance right after Jonathan died was like the first time he really understood how to sing it. Anthony Rapp said, the act two funeral, I don't know how Jesse did it. He never wavered. Just from a technical standpoint, when you're singing, your throat kind of has to be open. And when you're crying, it closes up. Martin, I held the last note so long I almost passed out. Adam Pascal literally held me up. Honestly, it was then that I learned how Colin sings that song. I hate that it was Jonathan's death that got me there, but it did get me there. that's kind of like the overarching theme of like the success of Rent is the cast being like I hate that this was the cost and it really is like a monkey's paw situation where it was like he was just grinding it out for 10 years like writing musical after musical like working shitty jobs like living in this you know shitty walk up being like I'm gonna get successful in my music and then not only did he die before he get to see it become successful his death was literally the propelling force to make it not only successful but just like a creative property worth billions of dollars it's also kind of funny, too, because after he died, while they were in previews, Michael Greif and the producer were making the cuts that they think Jonathan would have made. Right. And I think that's sort of the big question at the center of like a lot of, you know, obviously in the life of the show after his death is like the show. And I think everybody believes this, that the show could probably have used like one more good, re- good rewrite, like cleaning up, tightening mm-hmm. up and like. Even Adam Pascal is like, your eyes, in my opinion, is an unfinished song. I was always a little disappointed that the song Roger is struggling to write throughout the entire show to leave as his legacy turns out to be this song. It seemed like kind of a letdown. Your eyes, as we said our goodbyes, can't get them out of my mind. And I find I can't hide. From your eyes, the 
ones that took me by surprise The night you came into my life Where there's moonlight, I see your eyes Something that a lot of people have said straight from the horse's mouth. <laughs> I also want to say that, like, I don't think... I think Rent still would have been successful if he was alive. I think people would have responded to it, and it probably still would have moved to Broadway. But um, I, it wouldn't have been the kind of phenomenon that it was. And I didn't feel okay, like, saying that until I saw how many times the cast themselves expressed that. Like, like Adam Pascal talking about singing One Song Glory, he said, I questioned at first, are people reacting to the show itself or the sadness of the situation and the irony of these lyrics now that Jonathan is dead? One song glory, one song before I go glory, one song to leave behind. Find one song, one last refrain, glory from the pretty boy front man who wasted opportunity. And I mean, I think that is like his death really affirms all of the themes of the show. Yeah, it just is like kind of like an amazing like what if situation. What if my off-Broadway show that I had, you know, been working on for 15 years got a once in a lifetime press packet that really like sums up everyone's feelings about, you know, the role of like the artist in society right now. Right. So the Village Voice said, Larson's passing gives Rent real-world stake that turns it into not just fable, but a testament, which goes back to what you you were saying about him being almost this Christ-like figure. Larson is fast becoming a legend, and with so much of the play's carpe diem philosophy grounded in considerations of mortality, it's impossible not to regard the playwright as a sort of oracle. His death was a galvanizing force and a moment of truth, says Anthony Rapp, who plays Mark Cohen. I know it's only the story we're telling about it now, because we have to make sense of it somehow, but it seems like he knew whereof he spoke when he was talking about no day but today amid the neon illusion of broadway larson's demise will haunt rent but this opera phantom watches over his creation with love so i think like a lot of the criticism that comes with it is that the story it's telling of sort of like grittiness counterculture anti-commercialism is automatically negated by moving it to broadway Mm -hmm. it seems like there is disagreement among his friends whether or not bringing it to broadway is what he would have wanted so i think this was his sister who said when the show was moving to the niederlander theater half his friends said jonathan would have hated it and half said oh my god he'd love it and freddie walker also said somewhere deep down in my heart part of me believes that's why jonathan is no longer with us I don't know if he could have reconciled himself to the negotiations, the agents, the lawyers, the things you have to do to make a career and make money off of something. It becomes something else. But those who knew Larson longer say he would have been ecstatic about his play's success. He was a total artist dedicated to his art for art's sake. He had complete integrity and drive and commitment to it, Rap says. But he also liked the attention. He wanted his music to be popular. I think that that, there's something with that because on one hand, like he was a really talented songwriter, but he like would rather work a service industry job for 15 years than write jingles like he refused to use his songwriting abilities to make money in like a traditional sense but I guess I don't know if there's any way to really know how he would feel about the show moving to Broadway because it is like commercial and it is like about money but it's also like he is doing his art. You know, I think that something that people criticize a lot about it is the point of view of making money for your art is selling out, which is something that he seemed to feel in his personal life. And mm-hmm. also like, you know, watching the documentary about him 
that they made with as a special feature on the movie all of his friends who were also kind of like starving artists at the same time they were like yeah you know we had to live in these shitty apartments and like we hated it but Jonathan was like I love this like he really romanticized it but was also someone who like grew up in you know like a rich Westchester suburb like Mm -hmm. and like I think that is one of the failings of Rent is that it kind of flattens these people who are who live this way by choice versus people who don't have a choice and it, he does get into it he almost gets into it with the homeless lady who tells them off who the fuck do you think you are i don't need no goddamn help from some bleeding heart cameraman my life's not for you to make a name for yourself on easy sugar easy he was just trying to just trying to use me to kill his guilt it's not that kind of movie honey let's go there's a lot of full motherfucking artists Hey, artist, you got a dollar? (laughs) I thought not. But that like never pays off again. It's like there's one moment of self-awareness and then it's like that leads right into them doing Santa Fe where it's like, man, New York can be tough sometimes. Maybe we should just get out of here. (laughs) Yeah, I think that like that interaction with the homeless lady is like one part that from when I was first getting into Rent in like the year 2002 to now, like the conversation has uh, of like gentrification has like totally shifted or like just become a lot more mainstream and like i think that there's like a clear more clearly defined conversation happening about it but it was like really like wow like i was like did i just like imagine this yeah and i think like the most the thing that makes those characters the most unlikable is when their parents are calling them and they're like, hey, like, we love you. We're sending you, you know, like money in a hot plate. And they're like, oh, fuck our parents. God, they're so annoying. Like, I don't want to talk to them. Like, <laughs> Grow up. Not to mention, of course, hating dear old mom and dad. I feel like it's, you know, in a lot of ways, though, that that's like something that appealed to me about it as a young person where I'm like, I want to play I want to play this these parts like I want this to be my life right I also think that seeing these like white kids from the suburbs who are like living this bohemian life in New York (laughs) City I'm like oh wait that could be me (laughs) I mean I think a lot of people like I think that's why it appeals to a lot of people and I don't think that's a mistake I think you know one of the biggest problems with rent is that like we keep getting older but the characters stay the same age So I I pulled a few there was a lot of there was a lot of praise for it but there was also pretty much immediate backlash toward it and I pulled this I thought this was a really great piece in American Theater magazine the article was called Rent Check and the subheading was did the author's hyped romantic vision get lost in the media uproar In the last few months, I've often wondered what the audience and critical reception of Rent would have been if that aneurysm hadn't developed in Larson's aorta. It may have been dismissed as facile, derivative, and exploitative of its subject matter, or it may have been seen as a vital, innovative rock opera that heralded a bright future for the composer. But in article after article, Larson's real-life tragedy is inextricably linked to the onstage drama. A typical review details the circumstances of Larson's death, mentions the important entertainment industry people who are spotted in the audience, and ends with a cursory examination of the musical itself, commenting on the parallels with Puccini or the structural flabbiness of the second act. Peter Marks, in a New York Times article in February, made this conflation clear. Until a few weeks ago, hardly anyone had heard of the musical. Then its 35-year-old composer and librettist, Jonathan Larson, died suddenly of an aortic aneurysm on the night of the final dress rehearsal. And now, buoyed by waves of glowing reviews and strong word of mouth, Rent is the hottest show in town. 
Larson, so eager to share his passion in music with critics, would have appreciated this enthusiasm and validation of his life's work. Yet, I'd venture, he'd be troubled by the fact that few tried to really listen to hear what he was trying to say. While some lauded the grittiness and authenticity of his musical, it's clear Larson was a severe romantic and shameless sentimentalist. After all, his answer to his own question, how do you measure the life of a woman or a man, was simple, love. His East Village romantics are Rodgers and Hammerstein versions, and in the most notable departure from Puccini, Mimi rises up from her deathbed, her fever broken, her recovery assured. Ah, the American musical ending. Sentimentality is at the heart of every Rodgers and Hammerstein hit, and it's the pulse behind all the characters in Rent. Larson's ability to infuse lyrical, wide-eyed optimism into the darker realities of contemporary life, homelessness, AIDS, dog-eat-dog capitalism, is exactly what helped move the musical uptown. In the past three decades, many films and plays have dealt with such themes with far higher levels of credibility. Larson's New Age Bohemians display nothing but their lifestyles. Personally, watching a chorus line of homeless people shuffling in a dance step on Broadway was acutely disturbing to me. However, it's clear Larson did have a vision with social and political implications. He was deeply disturbed by a society that could become obsessed with an exclusionary notion of family values while alienating itself from the fundamental human values of community, caring, and love. So I know that's a lot, but I thought that was a good sort of balanced take on it. And I think it did. It does introduce an idea that a lot of the reviews talk about, which is that there is like underneath sort of the gritty trappings of it. And it's funny because apparently he's quoted multiple times as being like Sondheim is God and Jerry Herman is the devil. But I feel like his worldview is so much closer to Jerry Herman's than Sondheim's. Mm -hmm. even if the content is different yeah i totally agree with that it's almost corny in the same way well it i think it is corny in the same way that jerry herman sometimes can be corny yeah but like i don't think there's anything wrong with that like and i think that what carries it is that i it feels 100 percent authentic to who he was like who he was as an artist his view of the world and like (laughs) maybe this is a weird comparison but it kind of feels similar to cats <laughs> like where that's like you know that's just made by a couple of guys who really love cats <laughs> mm-hmm. it's like and i feel like that is sort of the same that same love of his of his subjects and what he's trying to convey that really carries it through even if you know the characters are not so likable even if the plot is like kind of messy it's like the strength and power of the score and also the point of view behind it that i think is really why it has prevailed yeah and i also just like think that there is like a visibility aspect to it that while it's like maybe not as like hard-hitting as angels in america or you know one the art form of it being a musical it limits it and just it's like how musicals work right and also i think that 25 years later looking back at it it you know seems a little hokey but it's like you know for me at least this was like the first piece of art dealing with like lgbtq issues and like issues that related to people who were sort of living in the margins on the margins of society that had given them any voice Right. And I think, you know, maybe moving into the Sarah Schulman issue because because she has a lot to say about that. And I think it's sort of it is kind of a double sided coin. So the short version is that Sarah Schulman is, you know, a lesbian writer who had written a book in the late 80s called People in Trouble. And it had a lot of similar um, plot and character elements to Rent, which we'll get into. But like her whole thing is that beyond the plagiarism, she really took offense to the fact that it like took these stories of marginalized people and kind of 
commodified it to be palatable for like mainstream audiences, which included like the big thing is that, you know, it's an AIDS story that centers around two straight white men and like, you know, the heterosexual love story is the most important one. But like the flip side of that is that by making it mainstream, it is available to like a much wider variety of people, including not just like, you know, straight white old people who want to feel good about themselves, but also like, you know, young queer kids who've never Mm. who are like able to see like a vision of themselves that they wouldn't be able to in other types of mainstream art. And I also just like think that the like idea that AIDS is not just a gay issue you know like I think that I do agree in some respect with the Sarah Shulman argument but Mm -hmm. I also think that like it's I think for me at least it's important to like not just think of like AIDS as like strictly a gay problem like I think that this idea of sickness in the era of rent it's important to like think about people with addiction issues and how you know something like AIDS relates to them. No, totally. And I think like with her book, it really took me on a journey because I was really going back and forth with like, oh, you know, I totally agree with her. But it's like, oh, I can see this other the other side of the argument. It actually kind of reminds me her whole thing sort of reminds me of the drama that's kind of been going on in the publishing world right now with the like My Dark Vanessa scandal, where basically the short version of that is that so there's a, a debut novel by this woman called My Dark Vanessa that has like, you know, seven figure book deal, like huge hype, like Stephen King blurbed it. And it was it's about a sexual relationship between like a teenage girl and like an older teacher who kind of, you know, manipulates her. And this other woman came out and was like, I wrote a memoir about you know this that and this plagiarized off of my story and like I had to fight so hard to get it published and I like barely made any money and you know the publishing industry privileges certain people's stories over other people and then there was sort of a backlash to the backlash where it was like no you don't own the story of sexual abuse like unfortunately it is very common that like older men in positions of power will abuse teenage Mm -hmm. girls and the author of the novel had to come out and be like this is based on my experience and like fuck you for you know making me like relitigate my trauma like for publicity Mm -hmm. so anyway so people in trouble like I think a lot of there are a lot of similarities between people in trouble and rent but I think a lot of them can be explained by just like she and Jonathan Larson were both living in the same place at the same time and like experiencing a lot of the same things just for posterity here are the similarities between people in trouble and rent and this is from her book she wrote a very juicy book called stage struck theater aids and the marketing of gay america which is a very um it's a good read however you feel about the issue both are set in the east village milieu of aids homelessness homosexuality and artists both are about a love triangle between a straight artist couple and the woman's lesbian lover the woman in the middle in both pieces is a performance artist who does a performance that defeats the greedy landlord evicting people with aids which serves as a cathartic plot point for both works in people in trouble the landlord dies in rent he changes his ways In both pieces, there's an interracial gay male couple where one partner dies of AIDS. In People in Trouble, an AIDS activist group steals credit cards to feed the poor. In Rent, a gay man programs an ATM for similar purposes. So, you know, those similarities are, you know, they're they're similar. But, like, supposedly Jonathan Larson based the Maureen and Joanne storyline on an experience that he had personally. Mm -hmm. Um, And so did Sarah Shulman. But she was, you know, obviously the lesbian. (laughs) But I think the big 
the big issue that is legitimate is that she like even before rent you know was a gleam in billy aronson's eye she was trying to shop around to get people in trouble adapted to opera adapted to the theater and nobody wanted to do it when it was about two lesbians that i think is a legitimate complaint yeah no totally someone was like you know straight people have problems too like why can't it be about straight people like my daughter can't find an apartment oh (laughs) my god well that's the same thing with in the heights where like lynn wanted to make it gay or make the relationship between the two main characters gay and they're like oh no like i think we've seen enough of that like make them straight (laughs) yeah it's very like you know i think like just having visible gay characters is like a big step but both the gay relationships are incredibly like tormented and chaotic like one of them dies like the lesbians are fighting all the time you know, it's uh, so and she also has at the end, she has her take on the plot of Rent, which I think is very um, scorched earth. And like, I don't know if I totally I don't know. So this is sort of her perspective on what Rent is like giving to an audience. At the center of Rent are two white straight men who are roommates. Ordinarily, an AIDS drama would feature two gay white men who live together as lovers, but this unexpected yet important switch immediately puts the audience at ease. For straight audiences who have worn out their ability to feel sorry but not responsible for gay men with AIDS, the recognition of straight protagonists is a huge relief. The audience quickly learns that one of the straight men has AIDS and has a straight Puerto Rican girlfriend who also has AIDS. This is also a point of relief to the white, well-to-do theater-going New York audience. After all, they think of themselves as sophisticated, not prejudiced, and here they have a nice Hispanic girl in the lead role. Oh, she's playing a gen- Good, that's believable. There are subplots. One involves a nice-looking black man and his Puerto Rican, homeless, HIV-infected, transvestite lover. They kiss on stage while the transvestite is wearing a dress. The audience is reconfirmed in their own sense of how tolerant they are. Gay men wear dresses. They die. How sad. What a relief. Well, that's what happens to gay people, I guess. There are secondary subplots. That's their place, even in the story of AIDS. The hero, the single white straight man, does not have AIDS. To make him even more sympathetic, he has lost his girlfriend to a black woman. He embodies the gentle straight white man whose sexual relationships and support structures are threatened by the encroachment of uppity people of color and the threat of homosexuality. He is the personification of the theater of resentment. Nonetheless, he still gets to prove his boyish masculinity. The black lesbian is from a rich diplomat's family, and she owns a lot of audio equipment, but she doesn't know how to use any of it. (laughs) Fortunately, the straight white boy who doesn't have AIDS shows her how. Her girlfriend, Maureen, his old girlfriend, should have stayed with him because she and her lover fight all the time. Bicker, bicker, bicker. They never have fun or help each other or transform each other in the way that the heterosexuals do when they're in love. Furthermore, Maureen keeps flirting with her ex-boyfriend in front of her new girlfriend. So how committed to homosexuality can she really be? And side note, the original ending had Maureen and Mark getting back together, which thankfully everyone was like, you cannot do that. Um, Once again, the audience is confirmed in their own liberalism. They watched a lesbian couple in a play. Lesbians don't have real love and don't have loyalty and can't fix their own audio equipment. What a relief. In the end, the audience is reinforced in their own sense of how progressive they are. After all, they watched black people, homeless people, drag queens, and lesbians. In the end, Rent proves the supremacy of the white straight people, the people who know how to love, the people who know how to live. You know, a little harsh, but she makes some points. Yeah, no, totally. And I think that like her summing up of the audience as like a bunch of liberals, like I kind of feel that it kind of became like a parade for celebrities to like show up at Rent and like they give like a list like on opening night, it was Michelle Pfeiffer, Sigourney Weaver, George Clooney, Isabella Rossellini, David Geffen, Barbara Walters, plus a ton more. Like, you know, it's <laughs> yeah, just like yeah. now. Bill Clinton. Yeah. And like, you know, they made uh, Bloomingdale's open like a Rent inspired boutique 
Um, and the Village Voice had like a funny uh, little, <laughs> some people might think it's tacky that Bloomingdale's is opening a rent-inspired boutique, but I think it's fine. If you're 14 and have just borrowed your mom's credit card and come into the city from Massapequa and you're dying to look like Alanis Morissette or Trent Reznor, what are you supposed to do? another thing that i think goes to what we've just been talking about is that i felt like the album art like the poster of rent and like Mm -hmm. the you know stenciled logo just like looks so cool yeah and i just like i just feel like having these images everywhere that like so perfectly commodifies what it looked like to be bohemian in the 90s and just like putting them on buses and billboards and you know advertisements Let's see. God, I feel like we still have so much more. I feel like it's a cast album that I just love so much. I think it's a really well done cast album, and I think it sets a high bar for how good a cast album could be. I think that with everything that we've said that seemed kind of critical, I think at the end of the day, like it's just like something that's going through my head at all times. Oh, yeah, of course. Rent is something that I've flip flopped on so many times over the course of my life, going from, you know, loving it to being like, no, this is stupid, to being like, well, it's, you know, it has its. And I think this is also one of those shows where, like, me rejecting it is part of, like, me rejecting a version of myself that I think is, like, uncool. And I'm, like, embarrassed that I thought this was cool. But it's Mm -hmm. also, like, you know, I just need to accept all parts of myself, including the part of myself that thinks Rent is good. (laughs) (laughs) In 2012, I threw a Rent-themed party. And someone in the past year came up to me and told me that it was the best party that they ever went to in college. Wow. I mean, I, I know that people are hard on the movie understandably (laughs) but i absolutely watch it at least once a year i mean i think that it was a really big cultural moment for us because i think we i was it was my freshman year of high school when the movie came out and i remember going to my friend's house and like it was a kind of like a boys and girls situation (laughs) and we watched the movie and lit a candle and someone got candle wax on my friend's mom's couch oh no (laughs) (laughs) But I guess that is kind of a good segue into like talking about like rent heads and rent fandom. Yeah. It's funny reading about the cast being like some of those rent heads <laughs> were way over the top. <laughs> like they did not appreciate the I mean and I think oh, I mean the most important one of the most important things that rent brought to Broadway was that it I believe it started the concept of discount rush Mm -hmm. and then so they were selling $20 seats front and center and it started to get so crazy with like people camping out for days that they um, established the very first ticket lottery to uh, help make the year more accessible to to the people who looked like the people on stage. (laughs) There's like a village voice piece about someone camping out that's a fun little diary. So, I mean, going back to the movie, like, I think that the movie being what it was amplified all the things that are bad about it, but in a way that I think is, like, kind of satisfying. (laughs) Like, having them all be way too old to be acting the way they are. Having Chris Columbus, the director of Home Alone, do it, (laughs) as opposed to, you know, like, Martin Scorsese and Spike Lee were, like, kicked around for a while because I think it is like it is ultimately a very sentimental and not gritty story so it's like Mm -hmm. and you know maybe this is also controversial but I think they were right to cut the stuff that they cut out of the movie like to cut all of like the interstitial like the voicemails like Mm -hmm. I don't know how well that would have played on screen yeah I don't think it would have played very well like everyone was like why do they just have them saying the lines they were singing and it's like well 
I don't know. It's a movie. <laughs> yeah. I think that the first Rent cast album that I owned was the best of Rent. And I think that I was like, oh, maybe this is just how it should be. I mean, there were some notable omissions on that. Like Halloween wasn't on that and nor was Over the Moon. Oh, wow. But there was like a really fun like remix of Seasons of Love at the end. <laughs> I think also a funny thing about the fans is I was watching this interview between Michael Musto um, and Daphne Rubin Vega and um, brought up that there was like this famous case of a au pair that shook a baby and she was a rent head. Oh, um, and it was like b- mentioned in like the court proceedings that she had like seen the Boston production of Rent like 15 times and like... <laughs> oh um, man, I have some thoughts about that, but I'm going to keep them to myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that one thing that I will definitely give rent is that while it kind of the rockness of it might sound a little posery, I do think that La Vie Boheme introduced me to like many cultural phenomenon that I think it is kind of like a good beginner's guide to like being alternative. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I agree. Like there is sort of this jolt that you get when you encounter something that you um have only heard of in Lovey Bohem the first time you encounter it in real life. When I found out who Vaclav Havel was, I was like, <laughs> oh. I feel like Lovey Bohem is uh, rivaled by the Le Tigre song Hot Topic and my favorite <laughs> list songs of like things that became study guides to like help me learn how to be cool. Gertrude <laughs> Sky, Marlon Riggs. we're getting close to the finish line there's still there's one more so going back to sarah shulman i think she does bring up a good point in her book where she talks about how like having benny be black like being having it be like a black guy trying to evict these two white guys like these two sort of suburban white guys really undermines the reality of a lot of gentrification which is you know white developers like evicting people of color and that like it reduces this like real issue of you know systematic disenfranchisement to just like personal beef that is something that i had never thought of but i think for me at least it like really did neuter like a possibility of discussing it as like gentrification where it's like i think that it just kind of confuses things a little bit yeah and it's like i think an overall criticism that people have of it is that it sort of vaguely feels political but has no real political stance besides like you know love is important chosen family is important but like to set it during such a politically fraught time and have the characters sort of go through the motions of being activists but not actually do anything that doesn't like directly affect themselves like I think is ultimately kind of harmful. Going back to sort of another view of the race issue and kind of like the purposely colorblind casting, Jesse L. Martin praises the cast as minority heaven, pointing out that the white people, if prominent, are outnumbered. That never happens unless you're doing Smokey Joes or Ain't Misbehavin', unless you're singing the black songs, he says. The reason I don't like to do musicals is because you end up working in this world where you don't really fit. You're only there because they need some kind of color. You put on this white powder wig and do some 
and 17th century dance. This play, it doesn't matter. It's like what goes on in the East Village. You have so many other issues to deal with. Race is the last thing you want to talk about. Indeed, race is never brought up in Rent. This is a point where Larson's utopian vision truly got fantastic. But the cast members are happy to be in a rock musical where, as Diggs put it, they're not playing Mr. Soul. If you're not in a stupid musical, you're playing a black guy in a play and you're a black guy, Diggs says. It's about black issues, but this play is just about people. Huh. You can really argue both sides. I can I can imagine like as a performer, it is a relief to play a role that doesn't have to do with your race, but also like for a show that claims to be political, like obviously race is a huge part of the issues that yeah. they're talking about in the show. Totally. And I think that it's also worth noting this season as a whole, like probably had the most diverse body of nominees yeah. in terms of like seasons that we've covered. I think between Rent and Bring Into Noise and Seven Guitars, like there was like a lot of different theater pieces this season that were like really celebrating and giving work to people of color. It's like just so amazing to me how strong this year was. And to like, you know, see the rest of the 90s kind of of peter out. No, totally. I think the other important thing to talk about besides Sarah Schulman, so Lynn Thompson, the dramaturg ended up suing the rent estate for co-author credit and 16% of royalties. The whole big issue with this whole case and the coverage of it was that like nobody really knows what a dramaturg is and what they do um, and how sort of like loosely defined those roles can be from production to production and how like there's no really legal framework to understand it. So she was saying that she wrote a quarter of the musical's book and about 10% of its music. And actually, someone who came to the defense of both Sarah Shulman and Lynn Thompson was Tony Kushner, and he um, testified in favor of Lynn Thompson, saying that he paid two people who helped him with Angels in America um, 15% of the royalties to you know recognize their contributions and everyone was basically like this is something that's only happening because Jonathan is dead like if he was alive he definitely would have acknowledged her contribution so that that first case was dismissed and then she brought another lawsuit saying that she so the court did acknowledge certain stuff that she contributed and she filed like a cease and desist being like you have to take my contributions out of the show and that was settled for an undisclosed amount of money So she did uh, ultimately get paid. And I think, you know, to circle back around to how this all becomes like, you know, Jonathan Larson, the Jonathan Larson sized hole in the center um, of Rent, it really has been interesting sort of getting a picture of him through his collaborators talking about him. It was interesting, this quote from Jim Nicola, because I think he does really get turned into this martyr figure. Jonathan was one of the most vulnerable and insecure people I've ever met. And on the other hand, one of the most confident and certain, and some would even say arrogant, Nicola remembers. In his first meeting with me, unspoken but very clearly present in the room was, when are you going to produce my play? It's ready to go. Our relationship over those four years was a variation on that. So what's the problem? And me saying, well, it's very good, but it could be better and you could do more and it could go further. So I think like... His collaborators, even though ultimately he has the sole credit, book music and lyrics, like Rent would not be what it was without Michael Greif, Jim Nicola and Lynn Thompson. Yeah. And, you know, Michael Greif was having him do all these rewrites and being the person who's telling the writer to do all of this stuff, like deserves some sort of credit. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, Especially since the plot is so convoluted, kind of. And actually, I found out in 
Broadway musicals, the biggest hit and the biggest flop of the season. Obviously, the book was a little muddled. For not long into the run, one page of the playbill was devoted to a note about the plot of Rent. That four-paragraph explanation was followed by a page sporting the Rent family tree. Next to their names were one-sentence descriptions such as, Benny is married to Allison Gray of Westport, whom we never see. Printed synopses and programs were usually only the province of dinner theaters in case patrons had one too many drinks and were unable to follow what was going on. Did it happen with Rent because some theatergoers were just plain confused as to what was going on? in this multi-prize winning show. Speaking of Allison though, I like, and maybe this says, you know, something about me, but I like want someone to make, if they haven't already, I want someone to do like a wide (laughs) Sargasso Sea style retelling of Rent from Allison's perspective because really all that we know about her is that her dog gets murdered and then her husband is cheating on her with like a teen go-go dancer. (sighs) Also, um, if you want to hear what Andrew Lloyd Webber thought of Rent, he said, we've seen rock and roll in musicals before and we'll see it again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brother. I know. Well, I guess Jonathan had two like big uh, interactions with Sondheim. Like one was him as a student telling him that he should stop acting and like concentrate (laughs) on writing music. And then another, he came to like a studio production of Superbia and he left in the middle of it. It was in 1988, so I guess into the Woods era. Victoria Leacock uh, writes, that was a terrible production. By the time he did it, he didn't have the people and the music he wanted and they forced him to make changes he wasn't comfortable with. Then Sondheim came. At intermission, Sondheim put his hand on Jonathan's shoulder and said, Nice work. I've got to go on Good Morning America tomorrow morning, so I'd better go. Jonathan was devastated. Sondheim says, I thought the show was interesting and that what he was trying to do was interesting. What was wrong with it had to do with the story and how the story was told. Some of the songs were good and others not. He was still finding a voice, and I think he still would be, but he had a voice, and that was the important thing. And I mean, I think that that kind of sums up Jonathan Larson yeah. Yeah, <laughs> in I general. Mean, he still was struggling with that in Rent. And I think like the real loss is like what, I mean, obviously like anybody dying is very sad, but what he would have gone on to contribute, like he was really just starting to come into his own. I think I I think that's pretty much everything. I do I there was a little bit from John Lars review in the New Yorker that I thought was really well said, so maybe we'll wrap it up with that and then maybe talk about the performance. Whatever the problems of the production, the score of Rent achieves the astonishing feat of marrying the musical's old sense of blessing to the society's new sense of blight. What you get is a song cycle tricked out into a notional story whose events are not so much dramatized as indicated. The musical becomes a kind of soap opera of song. The artists are evicted, then not. Mark sells out to network television, then doesn't. The quarreling lesbian lovers break up, then don't. Mimi resolves to shake her drug habit, then doesn't. Rent could use more streamlining, more color, more revision, but all that hardly matters. By the end of the evening, Larson's talent has taken the audience to places where the musical, with its boulevard frivolity nihilism, never ventures these days. Rent dares to embrace the ugly and the beautiful, the sin and the miracle. And if it naively rants at American capitalism at $30 a seat, at least it's asking about justice and not, like Starlight Express, about whether a steam engine can find happiness with an electric train. (laughs) Maybe that's why Andrew Lloyd Webber was a little salty about it. Yeah, and I think that that is true. And I think that, like, 
also with it being my first introduction to like like i think it was like my first gay thing it was my first intellectual thing and i also think it was like the first thing that i ever really consumed that was so boldly and plainly like bringing up topics of justice and capitalism and labor and these ideas that now it seems kind of silly how they posit them but like i think ultimately what musical is you know i guess like pajama game (laughs) no i mean i and i think that's a really good way to look at it like i think we really take for granted critiquing it on the level of being adults who have like consumed all of these other things that maybe say this better or like in a less hypocritical way but like as a teen encountering them for the first time it really just blows your mind wide open and i think that is like something you know we can really be grateful to rent for doing that for so many people Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan Larson. We have some notes, but... <laughs> but um, wow, okay. okay Do you we're want, almost there. Should we talk about the performance? Yeah, I thought it was really great. Me because- too. Like, I don't know if I, when I, the last time I had watched it was, but I think that, I think that they did it the right way. Yeah. Like, I think you needed to get Seasons of Love in there. They got the best parts of Seasons of Love, and they got the best parts of Love You, Bohem. I thought it was everyone was adorable so young so fresh so emotional and I like I liked that right after it um Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick were presenting award and she was like my brother's in rent I just had to say that (sighs) all right I mean like I feel like there is so much more we could still say but I I think we should I don't think we should Okay, and now, lightning round. (laughs) We're going to do the revivals. And I feel like we said this about the 2001 revivals, but for me, the sentiment is still true. I would love to see any one of these revivals. Same. Yeah, it's too bad that we don't have more time to talk about these because we were just saying off mic that we could probably do a whole episode just about these four revivals, but we just do not have the time. Yeah, we're running a tight ship here. (laughs) The clock is ticking. So, first up, we have The King and I, which won Best Revival. It opened April 11th, 1996, closed February 22nd, 1998. After 780 performances, 
Very good run. Music by Richard Rogers. Book and lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II. Directed by Christopher Renshaw. Choreographed by Jerome Robbins. I guess they were um, recreating his original choreography. So the Tonys it was nominated for were Best Revival, Best Actor for Lou Diamond Phillips, Best Actress in a Musical for Donna Murphy, Best Featured Actress in a Musical for Juhi Choi, Best Scenic Design, Best Costume Design, Best Lighting Design, Best Direction of a Musical, and it won... Best Revival of a Musical, Best Actress in a Musical, Best Scenic Design, and Best Costume Design. So it, you know, it did pretty well for itself. Yeah. The main review in The Times uh, by Vincent Canby kind of shit on it a little bit. Yeah, I was surprised. Like, I, the only revival that got unanimous raves was Forum. Mm-hmm. This one definitely got mixed reviews. So Donna Murphy, friend of the podcast, one-sided friendship. <laughs> she uh, She comes back and wins again two years after passion and you know what i thought was funny is that like so originally you know for passion it was passion versus beauty and the beast and her costume and hair in this performance in this production but specifically this performance is very bell from beauty and the beast Mm -hmm. so it's really like get you a gal who can do both she got to have her disney princess moment exactly i feel like donna murphy's the original get you the gal that can do both (laughs) (laughs) So there was an article about how she really didn't want to do it. She had to be talked into doing it. And she was kind of like, why? And she also brought up that she was like uncomfortable, uncomfortable with the white savior aspects of the story, which I was like, you know, happy that she brought up. Especially in the night. I mean, I feel like in the 90s, you could still get away with <laughs> looking the other way a little bit. Well, apparently this was the first production that was very strict about only casting people um, of Asian heritage, which has been a little bit fuzzy in past productions I know actually I feel like I read someplace that that's like commonly said but like apparently at some point Yul Brunner during his like many year run as the king started trying to like instill that but he's he was Russian. Well, that so. was like the thing is like people were like being like, well, your Asian descent is questionable itself. Wow. Well, I mean, I guess good for him, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I guess, you know, we'll uh, dive deep into that. But that's that's interesting. You know, this was like considered the production of The King and I that brought the I back into the equation. And because I think after years and years of like Yul Brunner being the star of the show, like it became really the King heavy. But she also by reading Anna Leowen's actual memoirs was able to see that it was more than just a white savior story. Yeah. I mean, I feel like they kind of undercut that by cutting, apparently they cut Western people funny, which is sort of the response mm-hmm. of the the women in the house to, you know, her coming in and being like, well, this is the way we do things. They think they civilize us whenever they advise us to learn to make the same mistake that they are making too. Which, you know, I feel like is really a strong, the strong statement that the Western way of doing things isn't necessarily the best way. Mm-hmm. But whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Not to be, <laughs> that was a little aggressive. <laughs> Should we talk about the performance? Uh, yeah, I thought it was great. My one criticism is I thought that, and like a lot of the reviews did say that the sexual tension and chemistry was there, but my one criticism is that in the part where he like 
pulls her closer. He barely pulled her. He pulled her like two inches. That should be like the sex scene of the show. Yeah. I felt like in the Barlet Shear version, they really uh, went there. And this one felt a little tame in comparison. Mm-hmm. And we'll post it in our show notes, but Margot Jefferson has like a really good little uh, piece about like the sexual politics of it. But the Variety review is very funny. It starts with, With The King and I, Broadway has a wonderful old musical and a major new star. Lou Diamond Phillips may have a gem in his name, but his performance in a role heretofore associated exclusively with Yul Brynner is 24 karat gold, and he does it with hair. (laughs) (laughs) That's important. Yeah. So only two of the revivals performed on the show. The other one was A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, naturally, because Nathan Lane hosted. A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Opening date, April 18th, 1996. Closing day, January 4th, 1998. After 715 performances. And it was directed by Jerry Zachs and choreographed by Rob Marshall. So it was nominated for Best Revival of a Musical, Best Actor in a Musical, Best Featured Actor in a Musical for Louis J. Stadlin, Best Direction of a Musical, and it won Best Actor in a Musical for Nathan Lane, as we have mentioned. So yeah, so this got... Nothing but raves. It ran, you know, over 700 performances. I think the most important thing to note is that Whoopi Goldberg came in and replaced Nathan Lane to uh, much applause. The critics thought that it held up, which is kind of surprising. I know. It seemed uh, it's that's one I regret missing for sure. Too bad you were five. Oh, and I know. And at the point at the this point, Whoopi Goldberg was dating Frank Langella, who was just down the block in another show. Oh, real a real power couple. It's amazing when you see like a performance of someone and being like, well, that person definitely can't sing, but they're still great. (laughs) I'll be pseudolist, the founder of a family. I'll be suitless, the pillar of society. I'll be suitless, whatever, if I just can be free. Free. Sick. F-R-double-E. Know the long way. S-R-E-S-E. Free. Oh, we didn't talk about the performance because this was sort of this was the opening number of the Tonys, basically, which was that it started on the stage of the St. James. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it started on the stage of the St. James. They did the classic like parading everyone down the street, which everybody lost their minds. It was super fun. It was very fun. You know, I love when they go out on the streets. Me too. I also feel like someone mentions this in the review, but like the set design and just like the general production design of Forum kind of feels like the Flintstones a little bit. Um, and it's like, I can't think of like any other Broadway show I've ever seen with like such weird, ugly costumes.
So the two closed musicals, we had a roundabout revival of Company, which opened October 5th, 1995, closed December 3rd, 1995, after 68 performances, music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, book by George Firth, directed by Scott Ellis, musical staging by Rob Marshall. What was most shocking to me was that Tony favorite Boyd Gaines was not even nominated for Bobby. I think it's because he was it was so sick the whole time. That could be it. So the only Tony nominations were Best Revival of a Musical and Best Featured Actress for our friend Vianne Cox. Yes. Again, another one-sided friendship. <laughs> but, you know, our DMs are open, Vianne. Yeah. So it had a three-month run at Roundabout. And I think that there was like people were on the fence about having it have like an open commercial run on Broadway. But like apparently like at some point Boyd Gaines was sick and you know it had 43 previews and 68 performances and I think it kind of lost whatever momentum it kind of had too bad yeah too bad and it was the first Broadway revival of company it was the last Sondheim show that hadn't been produced in New York since the original other than Follies oh wow that's actually kind of surprising I know. One little thing I wanted to highlight from one of the reviews that I thought was a really well-expressed sentiment. I believe this is from the New York Times Review. Though you may be so familiar with the Sondheim music and lyrics that you can play them in the mind at will, the show itself doesn't look or behave exactly as imagined. It's not a matter of having idealized the score. Instead, there's the realization that you'll always know it better for what it reveals over time in comparative privacy than for what will ever appear in a single public performance. Which I thought, you know... I just had an experience where, you know, I went to go see a production of Into the Woods and afterwards, you know, my boyfriend who had never seen it was like, all right, that was good. And I was just like bawling (laughs) because it had a decade plus to really marinate and, you know, reveal itself over time. Yeah. And I also feel like every time that there's a Sondheim revival, that kind this kind of happens where people are like, well, like, I don't know about that. You know, I feel like that always (laughs) happens with Follies, too. Well, that's because Follies, you know, is is a ghost and a dream. Well, we'll see what girl boss Bobby has to in store for us <laughs> this spring. <laughs> I know, although uh, I'm disappointed they don't let her be gay. Yeah, but you know, one thing I'll say about this revival is that I love LaShawn's version of Another Hundred People. <laughs> yes, LaShawn's Jane Krakowski and Charlotte D'Amboise uh, is really like a good trio of girlfriends. And they meet at parties to the friends of friends who they never know. Will you pick me up or do I meet you there or shall we let it go? Did you get my message cause I looked in vain? Can we see each other Tuesday if it doesn't rain? But I'll call you in the morning and my service will explain. And another hundred people just got off of the train. And another hundred people just got off of the train And another hundred people just got off of the train And another hundred people just got off of the train Another hundred people just got off of the train So very last one was... Hello, Hello Dolly. Dolly. Take it away. Hello Dolly opened on October 19th, 1995 and closed on January 28th, 1996 after 116 performances. You got our book by our good old friend Michael Stewart, <laughs> music lyrics Jerry Herman. So it was directed by Leroy Reams and I think it was pretty faithful to the original production. 
And you know, that's uh, that's the key to success, as we've learned. It's not a penny in your pocket. It's staying true to the original. I think that this was kind of like the end of a big tour of Hello, Dolly. Best Revival was its only nomination. Yeah. Um, and the year before, Carol had won her Lifetime Achievement Tony. So, so Carol did a very, very fun press tour <laughs> to support this production, giving just like as many deranged interviews as you would ever <laughs> want to read. The motivation behind creating this production was that theater owners across the country have subscriptions as this is her talking theater on, the theater owners across the country have subscriptions as you know and their clients and patrons all said if you can get carol for hello dolly we'll buy for the whole year so the demand was there and i guess you know they finished up with a stop in new york she said the only thing that's different is now that i'm free to do a forward bump in so long dearie that was not allowed in 1964 it was considered bad taste oh my God. which i'm assuming means like a pelvic thrust <laughs> um i'm was trying to find any information about it in her memoir that's organized by people's <laughs> names. <laughs> I can't find anything, but... Well, the, the one other thing is that she talks about her and Barbara mending their rift. Barbara and I made up at the Marvin Davises. You know the Marvin Davises? Well, they give a Christmas party every year and I get to go. I'm on their guest list. You've really made it when you get to go to the Marvin Davises <laughs> for Christmas. They have an 80-piece orchestra going up this marble stairway and they play a theme song for every person who walks in. Which is pretty frightening if you don't have a theme song. I'm lucky. I have one. Barbara's lucky. She has one. Anyway, we both happen to walk in at the same time. We're standing at the foot of this marble stairway and we look at each other and realize they're not playing Hello, Dolly. It's a sore spot. We hadn't spoken for years. They played People for her and Diamonds are a girl's best friend for me. We laughed and laughed and we threw our arms around each other. It was one of the happiest Christmases I've had. Streisand was not available for comment. Aww. Streisand was probably like, I don't fucking care. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, Carol who? But in the review, I think that this is the best description of Carol Channing's voice that I've ever heard. The Channing voice is an instrument, as eccentric as a theremin, and as valuable as Stradivarius. Her phrasing, enunciation, and timing, her delicious intelligence, and her commitment to the performance must still ravish audiences. And it does. Yeah, so she was 74, just... Bus and trucking across the country. She really was like the last of uh, the last of her kind. And that's what everyone was saying. And I think it is actually funny that this was like the same year as The King and I, because like before Yul Brenner died, he was kind of like the other person who had played it right. a million times. Don't miss your last chance to see the legendary performance. Channing. Hello, Dolly. Call Ticketmaster 212-307-4100. Um, okay. I think we did it, right? Yeah, we did it. We did it. Thank you for sticking with us if you've made it this far to the end of this incredibly (laughs) long episode. Yeah, so next week we're going to finish up what we got to finish up. We're going to bring in the noise and the funk. We're going to talk about some other stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't don't have it up right now, but I don't know. We're just going to do our thing. Just trust us. We got this one. Yeah, you uh, you know what we're all about. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't failed you yet, hopefully. You can... Email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mylittletonies. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mylittletonies. And 
that's it. Yeah, that's all she wrote. Bye. So long, dearie.